Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. In December 2020, the FDA authorized Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine for emergency use, followed weeks later by emergency authorization of Moderna's product. The new mRNA vaccine technology plus public demand for immunizations and the scale of immunization efforts all presented challenges for healthcare organizations. Dr. Kellen Engstrom highlights the role that Mayo Clinic pharmacists played to overcome COVID-19 immunization challenges. Since our world shut down about a year ago today due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the general public and scientific community have very closely been following the vaccine development process. Fortunately, as healthcare workers, many of us were fortunate enough to become vaccinated over the past few months. With that being said, there are still millions of American citizens and citizens around the globe patiently waiting for their opportunity to receive vaccination. Vaccine administration and distribution have been a topic of significant controversy in public discourse over the last few months, with significant concerns regarding timely vaccine delivery. As pharmacists and healthcare workers, we are in a prime position to really help implement improvements to our current process. Today, I want to discuss what some of those improvements may be. Along with discussing differences between our current COVID-19 immunization efforts and previous mass immunization strategies. I also want to talk about some of the challenges that have come up in complying with vaccine delivery, storage, and administration requirements listed in the emergency use authorization for our COVID-19 vaccines. And finally, I want to touch on the current state of immunization and where we can expect to see immunization go in the U.S. and around the globe in the next few months. When we look at our vaccine development timeline, back in January of 2020, before any of us really knew what was in store with our COVID-19 pandemic, Chinese scientists actually released the full code of the genetic, genetic code of the virus and vaccine development began. In February of 2020, the CDC reported the first COVID-19 related US death. And by the next month in March 2020, phase one trials had actually already begun for the Moderna vaccine. Only a month later, in April of 2020, Pfizer also initiated phase one trials in Europe and the United States. By July of 2020, the US government had signed contracts to purchase 100 million vaccine doses. And by November of 2020, Pfizer had announced promising results of their safety and efficacy studies for an mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. Shortly later, in December of 2020, the FDA granted emergency use authorization for the Pfizer vaccine and a few weeks later for the Moderna COVID-19 vaccines and vaccination began around, around the US. So when we think about the time of onset of the pandemic here in the United States last February and the time for vaccine approval, it was actually very short, although it may have seemed very long to some of us, um, a short 10 months. In a historical context, we see that, that it is truly remarkable how quickly we were able to come up with a vaccine. Similar viral illnesses, including SARS-CoV-1 and Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, um, still do not have vaccines. But we know that because of limited spread, we really haven't been working to achieve vac vaccines for these respiratory viruses. 
More recently, the Ebola virus um, took several years to develop a vaccine for, and unfortunately, we still don't have a vaccine for the Zika virus. The, mo the most close comparison to the timeline for our COVID-19 vaccine development is back in 2009 with the H1N1 pandemic. And we saw a very quick creation of vaccine there as the H1N1 strain was added to our seasonal flu vaccine. When we think about our vaccine development timeline, we can usually expect development to take at least 10 to 15 years. It generally takes about three to 10 years to discover the vaccine um, come up with, and come up with a manufacturing process. But for our COVID-19 vaccines, this all took place over the span of three months. Fortunately, phase one and phase two trials, which generally take four to six years, were combined for our COVID-19 vaccines and took place over the span of three months. Phase three trials were initiated immediately following um, the completion of phase one and phase two trials. And instead of taking two to four years, we saw phase three trials that were completed over three months. Finally, the FDA expedited the regulatory review process and approved vaccines, the vaccines about a month after phase three trials were, were finished. So overall, this is how we get to our very remarkable 10 month timeline. Another factor that really enabled the rapid development of these vaccines is the new mRNA technology that's utilized. This is actually an established technology that has been studied in animal models for decades. And we've seen research with mRNA type vaccines for cancer treatments and other viral vaccines. There were significant issues historically with vaccine instability and indirect mRNA delivery. However, we know that mRNA vaccines are very safe. They don't have the potential to cause infection and don't cause any mutations in our genetic material. The vaccines are also efficacious and they can be easily modified for stability and to alter different targets. And finally, mRNA vaccines can be produced very rapidly and inexpensively through production reactions. Oh, I, I meant to hang up. Operation Warp Speed also contributed to the um, expedited timeline for our COVID-19 vaccines. Many of you may have heard of this partnership between the US government and private sectors. And the goal of Operation Warp Speed was to begin vaccinating by the end of 2020, which, which fortunately we reached. It also aims to deploy 300 million vaccines by mid-2021, which we are all hoping to see occur over the next few months. Operation Warp Speed provided financial support to drug manufacturers to accelerate multiple vaccine candidates at one time, worked to optimize and streamline phase three trials, and scaled up vaccine production while these vaccines were still in trials prior to approval. Private sector manufacturers worked to help stockpile vaccines for distribution, and overall, the Department of Defense and Department of Health and Human Services worked together to try and coordinate vaccine distribution logistics for when approval occurred. We know that this has been a significant area of concern over the last few months, and much attention has been paid to the slower distribution than expected of vaccine. When we look historically at how um, pa pandemic vaccine distribution has occurred, our most recent comparison is the 2009 H1N1 scare. As I mentioned previously, we saw a very rapid approval due to the use of a, an adjusted seasonal flu vaccine to help target H1N1. The government in 2009 promised 150 million doses to be provided to the public by mid-October. However, at the time, only one quarter of doses were actually delivered. And by the time this, this full quantity of doses was delivered, the H1N1 spread had significantly declined 
and individuals in the United States were no longer as interested in vaccination. So when we think from a historical perspective, just over 10 years ago, we had a somewhat similar situation and there were significant issues with vaccine distribution. It's not necessarily unsurprising that we're seeing some of these issues continue. And with that, I'll take us to our first question. Um, you can please respond at pollev.com slash mayorx or text mayorx to 22333. So my question to you all is which of the following is not a factor that has contributed to the quick initiation of COVID-19 immunization? It looks like a majority of the group selected and the correct answer. We know that optimization of vaccine distribution by the federal government is still a significant obstacle um, to our COVID-19 immunization efforts. Phase three vaccine trials were streamlined with Operation Warp Speed initiatives. mRNA vaccines can be very rapidly produced, um, which has helped to enhance our initial supply. And we know that the SARS-CoV-2 virus was gene sequenced quite early by Chinese scientists. So as I mentioned, vaccine distribution remains a significant concern. I think it's worth taking a look at the current vaccine distribution model. So the federal government allocates vaccine to different states throughout the country. And then each state really has their own allocation formula by which they distribute vaccines to citizens within their state. The initial, the initial uh, distribution model utilized a model utilizing um, healthcare institutions that were hubs and accepted large quantities of vaccine and then distributed smaller quantities to various spokes in their wheel. Here at Mayo Clinic Rochester, we served as a hub and provided vaccine to many of our health system sites. An issue with this were significant storage challenges with the initial Pfizer vaccine. Here in Minnesota, the um, public health department elected to provide Pfizer vaccine to healthcare institutions due to the need for ultra cold storage. The vaccine requires storage at negative 60 to negative 80 degrees Celsius temperatures. And once taken out of that ultra cold um, storage and thawed, they are only stable for five days. This led to early attempts by healthcare institutions to stock up on dry ice, which led to significant shortages. In the end, only healthcare facilities that were actually equipped with ultra-cold freezers were able to directly accept vaccines and serve as hub sites. Additionally, the hub sites had to consider the very short time frame in which the Pfizer vaccine needed to be distributed to the various spokes and the spokes also then had to very rapidly administer their vaccine quantities to prevent vaccine waste. We saw here at Mayo Clinic that it required a little bit of shuffling of clinics of vaccine around at some of our health system sites, but eventually we were able to really get a good system going to prevent the need for shuffling, and we did not fortunately have to waste vaccine. Very recently, last Friday, Pfizer actually provided an update on their stability data that shows that we are able to actually store vaccine at standard freezer temperatures, negative 25 to negative 15, for up to two weeks. This is in addition to the uh, five days of storage under refrigeration that are already allowed by emergency use authorization. Overall, this can really help in um, providing uh, more liberal storage requirements and allowing more facilities to accept vaccine. Um, and not necessarily have to be concerned about the, um, that five-day um, refrigeration requirement. Pfizer is currently submitting an update to their official emergency use authorization, which we can expect to see in the next couple of weeks, and has announced that this applies to all vaccine manufactured by Pfizer in the past nine months. 
they have been very deliberate in really collecting a lot of stability data on their vaccine. So I also anticipate that there may be future updates to the current emergency use authorization in the coming months as well. There have also been significant issues with supply chain shortages that have impacted our ability to provide vaccinations to the public. There have been ongoing supply shortages out of China since December 2020 when the pandemic first hit there. Gloves, PPE, and needles and syringes have been on significant shortage. And in the case of needles and syringes, we've seen shortages since 2019. Gloves also remain on critical severe shortage and are expensive when you actually are able to find them. A significant point of education across the country has been that the intramuscular administration of vaccine does not actually require glove use. So immunizers, in order to preserve PPE, shouldn't really be using gloves when administering vaccine. Additionally, last fall, when Pfizer initially released uh, their vaccine data, there was a significant rush, rush to purchase needles and syringes. Manufacturers, unfortunately, were unable to actually fulfill rec these requests for supplies, as the U.S. government had already bought up much of the supply of syringes and needles, anticipating that they would need to send them with the vaccine to institutions. Therefore, individual health systems were really unable to get any additional supplies and had to utilize what was on hand to provide vaccines until um, the federal supply could keep up. An additional challenge um, is the stability requirements uh, of both of our mRNA vaccines in preparation and administration. We know that there are multiple doses in the, both the Pfizer and Moderna vials, which requires uh, very careful consideration of vaccine appointment quantities um, in these vaccine clinics. We know that Pfizer is only stable under refrigeration for five days, and it also can't remain unreconstituted at room temperature for more than two hours. For both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, they're only stable after preparation in a syringe for six hours. So when we think about this, that short stability at room temperature after preparation um, really provides significant risk that vaccine would go to waste if unused and requires very careful monitoring at many of these mass vaccine clinic sites. Another wrench that um, initially was thrown into the vaccine rollout was that pharmacists not noticed that there was a sufficient volume to pull a six dose from Pfizer vaccine vials. After a few days, the FDA put out a statement and clarified that utilizing the six dose was acceptable as long as contents from vials were not mixed due to the public health emergency. All efforts since then have been made to ensure that a six dose is drawn from each vial. Here at Mayo, um, there were many experiments done regarding needle type and syringe caliber to determine what made it the, the easiest to draw that six dose out. And we were fortunately able to utilize experienced technicians from our IV room to really help remove that six dose efficiently and effectively. Over the last few weeks, Pfizer has announced that with the vaccine they're currently manufacturing, they'll now include the six dose in their vaccine quantities that are sold to the federal government. So therefore, these quantities really put pressure on health systems to get that six dose that's allocated in each vial. We know that even with adequate resources, there may be significant loss of between five to 10% of vials. And so we may see some issues down the line over the next few weeks uh, regarding vaccine quantities and that six dose. Pharmacists here at Mayo Clinic have taken an active role in the vaccination process across all of our health system sites. 
Um, so pharmacists have served as immunizers at several of our vaccine clinics at several different sites. And I've also assisted with vaccine preparation at many of our clinics. They've provided oversight of st vaccine storage and work to prevent temperature excursions. And I've also been very closely monitoring beyond use dating to ensure that vaccine integrity remains intact and that we as an institution minimize wasted doses. Pharmacists have also played a significant role in serving as a resource to patients and other healthcare providers and asking many vaccine-related questions. In my discussion regarding the vaccination process, I've highlighted supply chain shortages, storage requirements, and administration challenges that have required the mobilization of significant amount of resources here at Mayo Clinic. As we all know, these resources are not necessarily available at every health system throughout the country, and this has caused a lot of inequity in the vaccine distribution process. Some areas had a much slower rollout of vaccination because they weren't adequately able to mobilize a lot of these resources, and there were a lot more concerns with the storage requirements and administration challenges up front. Hopefully, with the new update to the Pfizer emergency use authorization and continued study of these vaccines, that these storage requirements and administration challenges um, will help alleviate some of these inequities down the line. I think there remains significant concern in thinking about global vaccination, about the storage and administration requirements in countries that don't have the resources that the United States and much of Europe does as well. So I think it will be interesting to play out over the next year. And with that, I'll take us to our next question. Um, I think this is a very important question for pharmacists to know um, and be able to answer. So how long are mRNA vaccines stable after being prepared in a syringe? And the majority of the audience chose the correct answer. These mRNA vaccines are only stable after being prepared um, in a syringe for six hours. Again, increasing that risk for potential BUD excursions and vaccine waste. So this is an important question that pharmacists really should be able to answer. And there are other several common vaccine-related questions that I think it's worth mentioning um, and discussing today that have caused significant concern among the public. So the first question I want to ask, want to answer, is regarding allergic reactions. So we know that the CDC has closely been following this. And it, utilizing statistics from the first week of COVID-19 vaccination back in December of 2020, they calculated a total case rate of 11 cases per 1 million doses. This was in the one, almost 1.9 million individuals who were vaccinated then. Since then, we've fortunately had updated data, specifically from Moderna vaccine, that, that demonstrates 10 cases of anaphylaxis between December 2020 and January of 2021, with a calculated case rate of 2.5 per million and no deaths reported. We know from much of this reporting that 70 to 80 percent of these reactions occurred in individuals with a history of severe reaction, and all cases occurred within that initial half-hour time frame that the CDC recommends for monitoring. A significant question that has come up is in regarding patients who've had a severe allergic reaction to a first dose and how they're able to potentially get a second dose of vaccine. We know that the vaccine contains polyethylene glycol, lipid nanoparticles, and mRNA. Polyethylene glycol has been attributed to many of the initial allergic reactions that we've seen. Here at Mayo Clinic, our allergy colleagues have developed polyethylene glycol skin testing and very, very recently have worked to develop, to develop a vaccine skin test to test for true allergy. Additional potential strategies to deal with the second dose include utilizing graded vaccine challenges 
or having patients defer vaccination until a new vaccine is available. Unfortunately, both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine contain polyethylene glycol. So if an individual has a reaction to one vaccine, it's really not recommended that they receive the other. The CDC also recently put out new guidance that individuals with known severe polysorbate allergy should also defer vaccination. There's significant concern that due to the polysorbate allergy, there is a cross-reactivity potential with polyethylene glycol that increases the risk of severe allergic reaction. So these individuals should really defer receiving mRNA vaccines and wait until a new vaccine is approved that would be um, safer for them to receive. Another significant point of controversy has been the safety of the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines in pregnancy and lactation. The American College of Gynecology has put out a statement uh, regarding vaccination that identifies that pregnant and lactating women should really have the conversation about vaccination with their providers. Overall, they note that the risk for severe COVID-19 illness is likely is much higher than any risks from vaccination and do not see any issues with pregnant women receiving vaccination at this time. We know that there were several women in the Pfizer vaccine trials that became pregnant and have not seen any adverse effects. Unfortunately, the vaccines have not yet officially been studied in pregnant women, but observational studies looking at pregnant women who've already received that the vaccine are underway to track any potential adverse effects for both Pfizer and Moderna. The current recommendation from the American College of Gynecology is to not avoid breastfeeding following vaccination and to not dispose of any breast milk following vaccination for lactating mothers. Another potential source of misinformation that has come up about mRNA vaccines is really impacting uptake among younger women. There was concern raised that antibodies to spike protein would recognize Syncton 1 protein due to similarities in structure. However, Syncton 1 is a glycoprotein that's critical for placental development, and this could effectively lead antibodies to attack the placenta. We know that there's really no true scientific basis for this concern, as the overall cross-reactivity um, would be um, unlikely given what we know, know about the similarities in structure, and there's really no concern that really warrants further scientific study. So I think this is an area where we can provide a lot of education um, regarding the lack of infertility risk with mRNA vaccines. Another important point that I think is important when discussing vaccination with the public is clarification of expected side effects. We know that this is one of the most common reasons why individuals are hesitant to get the COVID-19 vaccines. So in discussing side effects, we really should emphasize that these are expected um, common effects that we've seen in between 30 and 84% of individuals vaccinated. Many of us ourselves have likely experienced fever, muscle pain, headache, and sore throats following um, the first or second dose of our vaccines. And these are expected and actually show that the vaccine is working and the body is mounting an immune response. On the contrary, severe adverse events are less expected and could have more significant morbidity and mortality consequences. We know that with our anaphylaxis data for the COVID-19 vaccines thus far, this is an extremely low incidence. And so clarifying that side effects are expected, but adverse events so far have been extremely rare um, can help go a long way in combating some of those initial fears. 
An additional question that has come up is when patients really reach peak immunity following COVID-19 vaccination. So if we look at the initial approval studies for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, we note that we don't really know much about immunity before that 21 days following the first dose. We know that with the Pfizer vaccine on day 21, as indicated by the light blue star here, we individuals will receive their second dose of vaccine. At that point, um, the studies estimate about 52% efficacy in preventing um, COVID-19 related disease. For our um, Pfizer vaccine, we note that two weeks after that second dose at day 35 since the first dose, we reach peak vaccine immunity at over 90%. For the Moderna vaccine, we see a slightly higher efficacy prior to that second dose at day 28 of close to 80% in the initial trials. Following that second dose, we see that efficacy reaches over 90% at day 42 following that first dose or two weeks after our second dose. So in summary, based on the approval trials, we know that about two weeks after vaccination, individuals will reach that peak of immunity. A significant question that remains is how long our immunity will actually last to the vaccine. We know from the Moderna and Pfizer approval studies that 90 days following the um, uh, initial, the second uh, immunization, uh, that immunization uh, immunity remained. However, we don't really know much beyond that. Um, Moderna and Pfizer are both monitoring clinical trial participants to continue to assess immunity and plan to do so for over a year. Um, but I think when we actually think about the answer to this question, no one really knows. So as we kind of approach the end of that first wave of vaccinations and most Americans receive their vaccine, I think we're going to see a lot more information potentially released by Moderna and Pfizer and a lot more concern about the potential need for revaccination in the coming year. Yet another question that remains unanswered is how COVID-19 vaccination can actually prevent transmission or if it truly does. So last week, we received a report out of Israel that was published in The Lancet, which is really our first look at how the vaccine is actually functioning in our real world population. It was a very small study and Pfizer worked with Israel's health ministry to perform observational analysis in their vaccinated populations. This specific data set looked at healthcare workers in Israel's largest hospital, so about over just over 9,000 individuals. They looked at vaccination rates and COVID-19 cases during a significant breakout and community spread of the current UK variant of the COVID-19 virus. Overall, they found that when adjusting for community rates of spread, when comparing case rates in unvaccinated to vaccinated individuals in the first 14 days following that first dose, we see a 30% reduction in PCR positive COVID-19 cases. If looking, when looking at that more extended time frame, 15 to 28 days following that first vaccination, we see a rate reduction of 75%. I want to note that this is a very small study. This is really the first information we have about how the vaccine is functioning. So it is not adequate enough to show that we're actually reducing transmission, but it is a starting point. And I think we're going to see a lot more observational data come out even in the next few weeks regarding how um, the unvaccinated and vaccinated case rates are comparing in, in certain populations. And with that, I wanna take us to our next question that's really important to answer when considering where we are in the vaccination process.
What percentage of individuals will need to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity for COVID-19 infection in the United States? And I know there's a little significant more variation in the answer to this question. And I purposely provided ranges because there is some disagreement among scientists about the specific percentage number that we have to reach. Um, but generally, experts um, do conclude that between 70 and 85 percent of the population, so answer C, would need to be vaccinated with, for COVID-19 to achieve that herd immunity. And so I think that begs the question, where exactly are we in the state of vac vaccinating everyone in the United States? So we know that 60 million doses were available in December of 2020, and 75.2 million doses since then have been distributed. As of yesterday morning, 63.1 million doses have been given. This equates to 13.1% of the population having received at least one dose of vaccine and 5.4% of the population having received two doses of vaccine. So when thinking of the context of that 70% immunity benchmark, we have a very long way to go. We are currently still in phase one of vaccination. I wanna note that depending on where you are located in the country and where you're located within a specific state, um, different areas are in different phases of phase one vac vaccination. Um, some areas are still working to vaccinate those frontline essential workers and anyone aged um, 75 and up, whereas others have mo moved more towards areas of 1C to include individuals 65 to 74 or with significant medical comorbidities. So really we can expect to remain in phase one for quite some time. With the predictions we have for vaccine supply over the next month or so, we know that we will remain in phase one um, and slowly work through this with significant variation in progress depending on where individuals may be located and vaccine uptake in that, that area. There have been significant ethical dilemmas with the va mass vaccination process. We know based on the fa our phase diagram that there are very, very large groups, but there's with limited supply, we really have to think about how to prioritize within those groups. There's some debate over whether we should be thinking about exposure risk. So vaccinating first those, those individuals with higher risk of virus exposure or vaccinating those who have significant risk of severe COVID-19 disease were they, were they to contract the virus. States are utilizing COVID-19 risk scores to help calculate who should be next to receive vaccination. Unfortunately, these are very different um, between states. So some individuals, um, depending on where you are, may already be being vaccinated while you're patiently waiting to see your friend or family member who may, may, may be in phase 1B um, wait very patiently for vaccination here in Minnesota. So unfortunately, I think this is something we're going to continue to see, especially with the viral nature um, of a lot of these vaccination selfies and things like that, and a lot of individuals really advertising that they've received vaccination. It's somewhat difficult to watch and think about when we see someone get vaccinated who we don't necessarily think of um, being in those early phases. Fortunately, however, our supply, vaccine supply issues could potentially be uh, resolved with some um, promising new vaccines. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine actually was recently submitted to the FDA for emergency use authorization, and the hearing for approval will actually be this Friday. So we'll know then if we have more vaccine supply on hand for March. Johnson & Johnson has noted that they have up to 10 million doses ready for distribution in March, 
um, it's unclear if they'll really truly be able to meet this marker that was previously reported. An additional promising new vaccine is the Novavax vaccine. It's currently undergoing phase three clinical trials here in the US. Um, from early data out of the UK and South Africa where phase three clinical trials were initiated earlier, we know that there are promising efficacy and safety results. And we may actually have some doses available here in the US for distribution by early summer if things go as expected. A significant question that also remains is when children are able to get vaccinated. We know that they make up a significant portion of our population and therefore are important to vaccinate to achieve that herd immunity marker. Currently, Pfizer and Moderna are completing adolescent trials in individuals down, up to age, down to age 12. And we can actually expect data for these trials by spring of 2021, with current estimates being sometime in April that we'll receive um, efficacy data in this population. Pfizer and Moderna are both also planning to start recruitment for trials um, in school-aged children in September of 2021, but we don't expect that safety data will be available until early 2022. I wanna note that Johnson & Johnson has been proactive in looking at pediatric vaccine efficacy and safety. So if approved, we may actually see approval for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in our pediatric age group before some of our current mRNA vaccines. And looking at the projected US vaccine supply, um, I wanna note that this is the information that's currently available, but it's fluctuating constantly and subject to change at any time. As I mentioned previously, next month, we can expect potentially up to 10 million doses of Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And by April, 2021, Moderna has promised an additional 60 to 75 million vaccine doses. Over the next few months, Pfizer and Moderna also hope to continue to produce several million doses of vaccine. And in June, 2021, we may have the potential for approval and distribution of Novavax. By July of 2021, Johnson & Johnson hopes to add 90 million additional vaccines to the United States supply. Really, when we look at this, this is a significant rate loading step, right? In vaccinating everyone here in the US and then also vaccinating the globe because we know that we need to do that to end the pandemic. Um, fortunately, several drug makers, Sanofi, um, Sandoz, and Merck, have agreed to also va manufacture vaccines for Pfizer and Moderna that have been approved. So hopefully this really helps alleviate some of these uh, rate limiting steps with vaccine supply. Um, specifically, um, when we think about the shortages that are going on here in the United States and Europe, and the need for long-term production of vaccine to ensure that they get distributed throughout the globe. There are a couple different barriers to ending the pandemic that, as I mentioned, serve as rate limiting steps. Vaccine manufacturing vaccine and vaccine distribution administration are both issues that I've discussed, but there's also significant concern about inadequate vaccine uptake. In early January of 2021, 68,000 US adults in the United States were surveyed and Overall, only 51% noted that they would definitely be receiving COVID-19 vaccination. Almost a quarter noted that they likely would not receive vaccine. We see in this survey, um, where multiple answers were allowed, that 51% of the population was concerned with significant side effects. So as I mentioned earlier, having these conversations about expected side effects and severe adverse events is really important moving forward. 50% of the population also notes that they would like to wait and see how the vaccine plays out. And unfortunately, based on this early data, we're seeing now, a couple months later, after several million individuals have been vaccinated, 
that up to 71% of adults are noting that they will receive or intend to receive COVID-19 vaccine. So this is very um, good news for us as healthcare professionals. But as I noted, um, to reach that herd immunity, including our pediatric population, we still need to continue to do better. So when thinking about how we as pharmacists and healthcare providers overall can work to end, um, overcome many of these barriers and end the pandemic, we know that pharmacists and healthcare workers in industry and supply chain have putting pressure on, been putting pressure on drug companies to manufacture approved vaccines. Unfortunately, we've seen that many manufacturers have willingly started to increase production. We know that the pharmacist workforce and healthcare workers overall have been mobilizing to optimize immunization delivery in many different settings, whether it be here at Mayo Clinic, um, in an acute care setting, or community pharmacies around the country that are not receiving vaccine. And finally, pharmacists and healthcare workers can really work to provide education to the public on the benefits of vaccination. I think sometimes as clinicians, we really think on a very granular ground level about individualized cases. So an individual may make a comment, whether it be verbally on social media, and we may think, oh, it's really not worth engaging, it's one person, that it doesn't really matter, I won't have an effect by really engaging in that. However, I wanna challenge all of us to kind of step back and think from a 10,000 foot level. If each one of us can really work and engage in some of those difficult vaccine related conversations, the sum of our actions can really, really for the better impact the health of our community and go a long way in ending this pandemic. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.